Take your Bibles and turn to Luke 7. Your Bibles or your devices, Luke chapter 7. Last Sunday we started a somewhat of a new series of messages called Come to the Table. And this just is going further with this idea of discipleship that is our theme this year. We want to be a disciple as we follow Jesus. We want to make disciples, other people that will follow Jesus. So be one and make one. And so we're looking at these table conversations that Jesus had with people as he made disciples. And so we're just calling this series right now, Come to the Table, looking at 10 different instances in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus ate with people. Now, in Luke chapter 7, let's begin reading in verse 36. Going to read a couple, three verses, then we're kind of going to set the stage for what's going to happen. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Your Bible may call her an immoral woman. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and and anointing them with the perfume." Now let me say this before we really dive into the text and the scriptures that follow this. This story assumes that before Jesus ever went to Simon's home, that this woman had heard Jesus proclaiming his message of grace for sinners. Grace and forgiveness. This entire account that we're going to look at today really doesn't make any sense without that assumption, that she's already heard Jesus preach. She's already heard the message of grace and forgiveness and how God loves sinners. She's heard that. She's been deeply moved by it. She has believed it. She has repented. And now she's looking for an opportunity to thank Jesus personally, to confirm the forgiveness of her sins and the salvation of her soul. And so when she hears and learns that Jesus is eating at this Pharisee's house in verse 37, she comes with that alabaster vial of perfume, and she's already in the house when Jesus arrives. How do I know that? Well, when we get down to verse 45... Jesus will say, since the time I came in, she was already there, okay? So I just want to set the stage uh, just to give a little bit more sense and context to what we're looking at. Jesus being a popular rabbi at that time, his fame, his popularity had went out. He has been invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee. We know his name is Simon from verse 40, which we haven't read yet. But Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to his house. The Pharisees, again, are the separatists, remember? 
They believed that you could obtain righteousness by keeping the acts of the law and all the oral traditions that have been passed down. But it's interesting that every time in Luke's gospel that Jesus encounters a Pharisee, there's trouble. Now, I, I don't want to accuse an innocent man, but I'm a little bit suspicious here that this isn't a setup. And Simon's got something in store for Jesus, probably to humiliate him in the presence of a lot of people. Uh, Simon's comrades are there. They're there in typical form, according to verse 49 of this chapter. And we're going to see that Simon, he neglects all the common courtesies that should have been extended to a guest, especially if the guest is a visiting rabbi. But Jesus comes, he accepts Simon's invitation, he enters Simon's home. But as you read this and as we continue to read what is about to come, don't miss the tension in the story that comes from what didn't happen. Don't miss the tension. Because as Jesus enters the house, every one of the traditional courtesies that should have been extended to him were omitted. Custom of that time, the culture of that time, required a kiss of greeting, usually on the cheek. It wasn't given. After the guests were seated, water and olive oil would be brought for the washing of hands and feet. It wasn't given. Because only after the hands and feet were washed could a prayer of grace be offered, and then the meal take place, at which time the guests would go and recline at the table. Every single one of those common courtesies that their culture observed were omitted. So to omit the entire list, obviously, was intentional. It was a calculated and pointed insult. And everyone that was in that room could not have failed to have noticed that. And Jesus had the full right to say, well, I see that I'm not welcome here. And just stormed out of the room in anger. He had a full right to do that, but he didn't. That's not the way he responded. He didn't say anything. At this point, he just simply went and reclined at the table. Now again, already in the room is this woman, the sinful woman, the immoral woman. We are never given her name, but she's got a reputation all over town. What was her sin? The Bible doesn't say, does it? But I can tell you, if you read commentaries and things like that, most of them believe she was a prostitute, a harlot, and thus the reputation that she had all over town. We can't know for sure, but that might be a pretty good guess. And so she's there in the room. Now, how does a woman of her standing and her reputation get into Simon's house in the first place? He's a Pharisee. He certainly wouldn't have invited her. Well, during such feasts and banquets, the, the common folk, the people of the town, were often allowed to observe the festivities. They'd get to look through the windows or look through the door. Sometimes they were even allowed in the room where they would surround 
everyone that had been invited and the table that's there low to the ground and the guests that would recline at the table. And, and sometimes they got to be right there in the room, maybe even talk with the guests. Sometimes maybe even get, be given some leftovers to take home. And so this woman just takes advantage of the custom in order to get close to Jesus. Her acts aren't random, but I don't know that they're fully planned out either. We're told she brought the perfume with her, probably planning to anoint Jesus' hands and head. I don't think she planned to wash his hands or his feet. Or she would have brought water and a towel. She probably assumed that the host would extend the traditional courtesy to all of his guests. But he didn't. And so she's kind of wondering probably what she's going to do. Well, after reclining at the table, we've talked about that before, all right? You would lay on your left side, have a pillow under your left arm, prop yourself up, and you could reach onto the table with your right hand. Your feet then would be out behind you. So after reclining at the table, Jesus' hands and his head are no longer available to her. And so she makes this decision. The host had omitted all the traditional courtesies. And it's as if she decides to offer them to Jesus herself. But if she asks for water, do you think they're going to give it to her? Not if it had been intentionally omitted trying to humiliate Jesus, they're not going to give her any water or a towel. So this woman probably is a little bit angry at Simon for not providing the common courtesies to Jesus. But I think she's also full of love because of what she's already experienced from Jesus before she ever got to that house. Listening to his teaching and his preaching and and the forgiveness that she has received. And she begins to weep. Now the Greek word for weep in this text means to wail. She would have been noticed. It would have been loud. It would have been obvious. She is wailing. And maybe a little light bulb comes on, but as her tears are falling... She thinks, I can wash his feet with my tears. And the text is very precise here. First, she begins to weep. She approaches his feet to wash them. To go beyond that and try to wash his hands and anoint his head would be highly improper. That would trigger criticism for engaging in sexual misconduct. So she wouldn't only do that, but his unclean feet right there are another matter. You can understand as Jesus' feet are extended out how she could just come up to his feet and not, not be a hindrance to anything else taking place at the table. She carries with her that alabaster jar of perfumed ointment. A jar like that, probably a small jar, could have been a big one, but probably a small one, would usually be kept on a string or a chain around a woman's neck and tucked into her clothing. If she were a prostitute that would be used in her line of work as well but this gesture of this ointment is financially costly to her socially costly to her she pours 
this expensive perfume, this ointment on his feet. Olive oil would have sufficed. It would have been enough. But none had been offered to Jesus. She anoints him with this perfume. Surely no one could criticize her if she washed his feet. But they do. Her total focus is on Jesus. And yet her acts not only irritate, but they shock the righteous people in the room. Why? Well, they know her reputation. But not only that, what did she do? She uncovered her hair. And she touched Jesus. In traditional Middle Eastern society, from the days the Jewish rabbis even to this present day, a woman was to keep her hair covered in public. She didn't. If a woman went out in public with her hair unbound or uncovered, her husband was within his full rights to divorce her. That was a, div a divorceable offense. To a Pharisee or to a rabbi, when a woman uncovered her hair in public, she was offending God because a woman's hair was considered sexually provocative. A woman's leg, a woman's voice, and a woman's hair were all considered sexually provocative. And in traditional Middle East society, a bride on her wedding night would let down her hair and allow it to be seen by her husband for the first time. And here's this woman in a room full of people who lets her hair down. So no one around the room could have missed the overtones of this woman's gesture. By unloosing her hair, she's making herself, she's making some kind of a pledge of loyalty to Jesus, but Simon and his friends, all they see is this repulsive act of sexual provocation. And they're shocked. Now in the light of the cultural world of his day, what was Jesus expected to do? What would Simon and his friends expect Jesus to do? Well, the answer is easy. Jesus was expected to be embarrassed over the touching he was receiving from the woman. He was expected to be shocked that she exposed her hair. And everyone in the room would assume that he would instinctively judge these acts as beyond the range of acceptable behavior, and he would reject her. And all Jesus had to do is turn to Simon, give him a word, and she would be quickly removed from the room by a servant. But to the amazement of the entire assembled crowd, Jesus allowed the scene to proceed. He accepted her gestures. And they're probably thinking, does this man have no sense of shame? Notice verse 39 now. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, 
he graciously forgave them both. Which of them therefore will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Mark Moore, who just preached at Oil Belt at our men's night recently, Mark Moore in his book, The Chronological Life of Christ, says that Simon's thoughts can be summarized this way. Number one, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she was. Number two, if Jesus knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Number three, Jesus is letting her touch him, therefore Jesus must not be a prophet. You can follow that line of reasoning, I think, with no problem. Now the problem with that is in the second minor premise, that Jesus wouldn't let the woman touch him if he knew what kind of woman she was. That's where Simon was mistaken. Jesus would let her touch him, just as he let the woman with the issue of blood touch him and be healed. Just as Jesus himself is willing to reach out and touch an unclean leper and bring healing. Now Jesus is about to prove to Simon that he not only knows exactly who the woman is, he also knows exactly who Simon is and what Simon is thinking. And he says, I have something to tell you, Simon. And unaware that Jesus has perceived his thoughts in a very respectful way, Simon says, well, tell me, teacher. I think there's some hypocrisy being displayed there. Because what's running through Simon's mind and coming out of his mouth are two different things. But Jesus responds with this simple parable about a moneylender. This moneylender is somewhere between a respectable banker and a crooked loan shark. In other words, he's not going to be too generous. But let's pretend that this one just happened to release these two from their debt. It might literally be translated, he made a gift of their debt. You know that a denarius represents one day's pay for an average workman. So one fellow here owed about a month and a half salary. The other guy owed ten times that much. year and a half to two years of salary. So if the money lender forgave both debts, who would love the money lender more? And Simon says, I suppose... That kind of seems to have an air of indifference about it. I think Simon is likely thinking that he's about to get nailed by Jesus, but he don't know how it's going to happen. He can't figure out just how. But nevertheless, he answers correctly. The one with the bigger debt forgiven will love the money lender more. Now look at verses 44 and following. After Jesus says, you've judged correctly, Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Well, everybody in the room had seen the woman. She'd been wailing. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now that's a tender scene. Jesus looks at the woman, 
but he speaks to Simon. He compares the way the two have treated him. He begins with the washing of feet, an important part of hospitality. You walk along those dusty roads, and that time with sandals on, your feet get dirty and they get stinky. All right? It was courteous to have your servant wash a guest's feet. That would save the guests the embarrassment of doing it in front of everyone, but it could be acceptable just to provide the water and let the guests do it themselves. Simon didn't make any effort to get that done. But the woman not only washes Jesus' feet, but does it with her tears and dries them with her hair. He mentions the greetings of a kiss. Nothing romantic implied there. Males normally greeted one another with a kiss on the cheek. Simon didn't show Jesus that affection. This woman not only kissed him, but in total humility kissed his feet, and she's still down at his feet, fervently kissing them. Jesus mentions the act of anointing. Special sign of honor, often done with olive oil. That was the normal household oil, but Simon doesn't honor Jesus that way. But this woman, however, not only anoints him, but does so with ointment, which is far more valuable than the oil. And instead of honoring Jesus' head, she honors even his feet, which was seen as an extreme luxury. And so in verse 47, it continues this comparison between Simon and the woman. She has much to be forgiven, therefore she loves much. Simon has little to be forgiven, so he thinks, therefore he loves little. But the fact of the matter is, Simon is as unable to pay his debt as the woman is. And Jesus stoops no lower in allowing this woman to touch him than when he entered Simon's house to eat with him. Bottom line is, everybody's a sinner, and we all need Jesus. Notice the conclusion. He said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Have been would indicate what? Already. He doesn't say your sins are forgiven. They have been. Again, assuming this woman has already heard Jesus preach and has already experienced that forgiveness and she's coming to thank him. Your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with them began to say to themselves, Who is this man that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so for the second time at this meal, Jesus is the subject of debate. The same debate arose many months ago in Capernaum when four men lowered their paralytic friend on a pallet and Jesus forgave his sins and proved he had the power to do so by, by healing him back in Luke chapter 5. But this time he doesn't offer any evidence, no proof. In fact, he apparently ignores the rumblings going on about the room, and he concentrates on this woman. He says to her, your faith has saved you. And that, that short verse is just packed with meaning. What, or should I say who, was the object of her faith? Well, obviously Jesus was. And her faith in Jesus saved her. Only Jesus can save, right? 
but he saves those that respond to him in faith. And furthermore, her faith isn't seen by a confession out of her mouth. Her faith is seen by her actions of lavish worship. In fact, our faith can only be measured by our actions because faith without actions is dead. Faith without deeds, dead. James 2.17. So Jesus proclaims a woman has been saved so she can now go in peace. She may not look any different, but she is different because she's already been saved. She still has a lot of work to do, a lot of things to work out. She's still going to have to overcome temptation. She'll still have to deal with the reputation around town and the social stigma that's attached to that. She'll have to figure out a way to support herself. But she has peace in her life now, truly at peace, because Jesus has forgiven her. Well, what about Simon? Well, Simon and his fellow Pharisees fell into the trap of the devil by measuring themselves by one another, comparing themselves with one another. And listen, whenever we do that, whenever we measure ourselves by other human beings, we're going to select somebody that we don't think measures up as, as good as us, right? We're going to make ourselves look good. When we measure ourselves by one another, we're using imperfect standards and always able to find ourselves better than our standards. We justify ourselves. We declare ourselves able to stand on our own goodness without need of the grace of God. Simon compared himself to the woman. Who should he have compared himself to? Jesus, for sure. And every one of us should compare ourselves to Jesus and learn that we need his forgiving grace. So what a scene Luke gives us here. This woman is still kneeling at Jesus' feet. Her hair is still hanging unattractively. The tears are still flowing. She loves Jesus. But Simon is reclining there with his jaw set. He has no love for Christ. No love for the poor woman. He is graceless. Forgiven people love God and God's people. Those who are forgiven much love much. Do I, do you really love Christ? This is the unveiling test of our faith. Is our love for him still growing? It's a sure indicator of our spiritual health. And how beautiful Jesus is here in this account. He is pure, utterly sinless, and holy, and perfect. And yet this sinful woman sends from him not condemnation, but forgiveness and acceptance that freed her to pour out her love upon him. And that's the way Jesus receives all sinners that come to him. And how beautiful the woman is now. She's been forgiven. Though her sins were as scarlet, she's now as white as snow. She feels the freedom and the joy of her forgiveness. And if you understand the gospel, you understand what's happened inside of her. She truly loves the Lord. And think about it. Even though she's been dead for 2,000 years now, she loves Jesus even more today than she did then. And she is still worshiping him. Do we love him like that? Do we truly love him? I pray that we do. So as you come to the table, who do you come as? 
Who do you identify with in this story? Do you come to the table with Simon? Refusing to give grace to others? Are you comparing yourself with other people that you don't think measure up to you? Do you come unimpressed with Christ? You have no love for Jesus or for others. You only see the faults of others and not their potential. Or are you more like Jesus? Who loves others? Dispenses grace. Are you willing to sacrifice self for the good of others? Jesus sacrificed himself in the greatest way possible to, to save us from our sins. To save the world. Do people see Jesus in you? Or do you come to the table like the woman today? In need of grace. In need of mercy. In need of forgiveness. Do you need to come to Christ? If so, why not today? Why not today? And don't think, well, I'll come to Christ someday, but I need to clean up some things in my life first. Oh, no, 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 no. You come to Jesus, receive his forgiveness, and let him cleanse you of your sin. You can't cleanse yourself. You need the blood of Christ. God the Father wants you to come just as you are right now today and accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And I guarantee you will go home different. I guarantee that. So come to the table. Come to the table. And if you come as the woman came, there's a place reserved for you. And you'll find acceptance. Whatever your need is today, whatever the next step is you need to take in your journey of faith, take that step today as we stand and sing.